scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, turn with us there. We'll have it up for the scripture reading. And after that, we'll only be cross-references, so you'll want to open your Bibles to Matthew, chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses, I can't read them, 18 through 22. I do know what text we're in, I just don't remember numbers at all. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22, the Holy Scriptures read. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith, And do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, help us to learn the lesson of the fig tree. Help us to see what the curse means, what the fruit is, what the tree stands for so that we might better understand who we are in light of who you say we are. Not who we feel we are, not who others tell us who we are, but who you say we are. And so, Father, I pray for the one here today who does not know you, who does not understand that they are cursed, and that the only removal of the curse comes through the blood of Jesus. Help us now to understand these truths. Bless your people. Bless the Lord, all our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to curses, it is said that there's a whole lot of ways to get them, and, this is kind of good, there's a whole lot of ways to get rid of them. For example, let's look at a few of these. When it comes to these contraptions, what must we avoid doing, men? Uh, not sta- staying on the top step is actually fine. That's not where I was going. That's perfectly safe if, you've, if you know what you're doing. Uh, but that's not what's unsafe. What's unsafe is walking under them. For if you walk under a ladder, you are cursed for seven years. And why? Well, it's obvious. It's because ladders are in the shape of triangles. And anyone who knows anything at all about triangles knows that triangles symbolize life in most mythologies. And so if you walk through a triangle, what you're actually doing is you're, you're tempting fate by putting your life at risk because everyone knows that when it comes to triangles in life, there's evil spirits and good spirits attached to this. So when you walk through a triangle, you're actually inviting evil spirits who live within those triangles to curse you with bad luck for seven years. Everyone knows this, right? That's why we don't walk under, under ladders. However, thankfully, if you do walk underneath a ladder and do end up cursed, well, take hope there is a cure, for you can counteract this curse with a very simple thing, which is by ta- pl- taking your thumb and your index finger, and you might need to, if you don't know what your index finger is, you might have to Google this, but take your thumb and your index finger, cross them, and hold it there for five seconds while making the sign of the cross, which will remove the curse and all of the bad luck that you have gained by tempting fate by walking through the triangle ladder. 
It's a weird thing in paganism. All right. Another way that you can allegedly receive a seven-year curse comes from mirrors. How? Not by looking in them, by breaking them. Because if you break a mirror, that's bad. Because as all good pagans will tell you, mirrors are reflections of the soul. And so by breaking a mirror, it is said that you have brought a curse upon your soul, which lasts for seven years. Why seven years, though? Well, it's obvious, if you know anything about science, our body cells are completely replaced every seven years, which will eventually get rid of its curse all on its own. So if you want to get rid of the curse before that, though, you can thankfully remedy it by taking the broken mirror outside and burying it in the moonlight. So get at it, and you'll get it fixed. One more curse here. Uh, it comes from sneezing. Uh, the, whole, the whole achu thing actually is more dangerous than you think, not just because it spreads germs, but because when you sneeze, part of, if not all of your soul comes out, leaving you exposed to other spirits coming in there, and that's going to give you all sorts of bad things, including bad luck. And so what is the remedy for this? Well, of course, it's saying bless you immediately so the spirits are blocked by that blessing and they can't enter giving you bad luck for seven years. Good. All right, we got it. When it comes to being cursed, there's a whole lot of ridiculous ideas out there. This is only three of about three million. And when it comes to getting rid of curses, there is an equal amount of ridiculous ideas out there. And today, when we hear about curses, for the most part, we see them as being just that, ridiculous. And so we don't take them seriously. Sure, maybe we still knock on wood, which is also paganism, or avoid rock climbing or other dangerous activities on days like Friday the 13th. But the truth is, deep down, we really know not to take these seriously. After all, we are enlightened rationally thinking, scientifically minded, modern Americans. We have technology. We know better. And so when we hear about curses, what do we naturally do? We ignore them. We don't take them any notice because we don't take them seriously. And this actually leads us to a very serious potential problem. Because even though there's a whole lot of make-believe out there when it comes to curses, as we find in our text this morning, there is one curse that is very much not make-believe. And it is very much worth paying attention to. For this curse not only leads to a few years of bad luck, but an eternity of never-ending perpetual destruction and doom. In Matthew 21, verses 18 through 24, we find Jesus' encounter with the fruitless fig tree. And if you didn't know, figs do come from a tree. If you buy them at Costco, they don't just fall in there in those little cans. They come from a tree. You pick them off, and they are a fruit. All right, and so in this passage, Jesus encounters a fruitless fig tree that he powerfully curses, which leads to its destruction. At first glance, when we read this passage, it can seem quite odd, can't it? Like, why is Jesus cursing something at all, let alone a fig tree, for not having fruit on it? This seems kind of like an overreaction, doesn't it? And to make things more strange, Mark tells us in his account that it's a fig tree that isn't even in season. So why is Jesus cursing a fig tree for not producing figs at a time when it's not even supposed to be producing figs? Like, what's with that? Seems like an overreaction a little bit, doesn't it? At first glance, it did to me. 
So what's going on here? Well, skeptics will tell you that Jesus is doing just that. He's overreacting. He's throwing a very human temper tantrum. Why? Because Jesus is just that. He's not God. He's very human after all. And this is an example of that, of him losing his temper. See, Jesus is human like the rest of us. And when he gets hungry, like you and I, he also got hangry at things that were not worth getting angry about, like fig trees. And so that's why he cursed it. And it wasn't until much, much later on that people then embellished this story, threw in a little miraculous twist to it, talking, showing how it withered the very next morning. So it basically was a fisherman's tale that grew and grew and grew, and here you have it in your Bibles today. Well, that's one option, and I'll bet you probably guessed this, but it's not the option we're going to go with this morning, because that's the wrong option, okay? The truth is, when we dig into this passage, when we go beyond its surface, we find that Jesus is teaching us a very powerful lesson that we all desperately need. And what is that lesson? How to avoid the effects of a very serious and very much real cosmic divine curse. For the truth is, every single one of us in this room, every single person on this planet is born into this curse. So how do we break it? How do we get rid of it? Well, I know, I have an idea. It's, uh, we have to clearly produce enough fruit. That'll solve the problem. More good works plus less bad works will break the curse. Because after all, Jesus cursed the fig tree, and I know why he did it, because there wasn't enough fruit on it. So if I produce enough fruit, that'll deal with the curse. It'll get rid of it, right? Wrong. In fact, that strategy won't even get you remotely close to breaking this curse. There's only one thing that can do it. And what is that? Faith. Faith is the one thing that can break this cosmic curse. For faith alone is the only thing powerful enough to break the kingdom's curse that every single one of us is under. And that, my friends, is the powerful lesson of the fig tree. So have faith. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Shall we? No, we shall not. For as we shall see, there's a lot more here that we do need to understand. Because now that we know that faith breaks the curse, we also need to know the reason why faith breaks the curse. Because if we don't understand that, we won't actually have a faith that can powerfully break this powerful curse. So we need to understand why faith is so important. Why is it so important? Here's the answer. For without faith, we will be three things. We will be fruitless, we will be cursed, and we will be powerless. Look at verses 18 through 19. <clears throat> In the morning, he was returning to the city. He became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing but only leaves. Now, to understand the parable of the fig tree, we need to understand what each object represents. I'm sure we'll get into this in our Sunday school hour when Ryan brings up eschatology and shows us how to understand these symbols, but this, this is what we're doing. We are taking these symbols here, the tree, the leaves, and the fruit, and the withering, and we have to understand what each object here represents, or we're not going to make any sense of this passage whatsoever. So, to understand the parable of the fig tree, we got to understand what each of these four objects represents. So, let's start with the tree. What does the tree represent? Well, in the Bible, over and over and over, the tree represents Israel. Okay? And if you want to write this down, you can. We don't have time to look at all of them, but I would write down Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah 29, Isaiah 28, 
Hosea chapter 9, and Micah chapter 7. These are just a few of them. There's a whole lot of these that talk and clearly show that Israel is the fruit tree. So we'll just look at one right now, so you have at least a little something here to see what I'm basing this off of, and it comes from Jeremiah 8.13, which says this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away. Now, the context for Jeremiah's day is certainly similar, but it's a bit different than Jesus's day. But in both of these situations, Israel represents the fig tree and the fruitlessness represents Israel here. So the, so the fig tree is Israel, but the question then is, what does the fruit and the leaves represent? So fig tree is Israel. What about the fruit and the leaves? Okay, we've got to figure this out. Well, to understand that, we need to remember what we looked at last week. And I'll just give a little review here if you weren't here. But last week, what we looked at was Jesus's triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem, where he went where first? The temple. And what did Jesus find in the temple? Fruit or no fruit? No fruit. It was an abysmal state. He found people in the temple, which existed for the purpose of worshiping God. And when he went there, did he find that? No, he didn't. Not at all. Instead, what he found was that the religious leaders had turned God's house into what Jesus calls a den of robbers who were exploiting others for their own personal gain. But as we just said, the temple wasn't for that, was it? The temple wasn't for the self, for bringing uh, acclimates and worship to your own self. It was for God. It was for going there to worship him. And yet the religious leaders had turned the temple into something that served themselves. And biblically, that's called idolatry. And so this explains then why when Jesus shows up, these religious leaders wanted nothing to do with him whatsoever. See, Jesus is the son of God. The temple is his temple. It exists to worship and bring glory to him. And so the very God whom the temple was made for shows up and the people are like, we weren't worshiping you in the first place. Why are you here thinking we're gonna worship you now? Now, they might not have articulated that verbally, but that was what was going on in their hearts. No questions about it. They had turned the temple into a place to serve them, not God. Not only did these robbers rob others of their finances, but they were robbing God of the glory that was due to his name. And so when Jesus shows up as their messianic king, the religious leaders are like, mm, nope, don't want anything to do with you. We are king. We don't need you as king. And they've been treating God second place the entire time. So when Jesus shows up, it's just more of the same. So that's the fruit. How about the leaves? To understand the leaves, we have to do a little bit of botany. We need to get a little bit agricultural here. And I'm sure a lot of you really hated that class in school, but I'm going to need you to stick with me here and do your best to follow along because if you do, this is totally going to come together for you. It's going to make sense, but you got to stick with me for a second. So focus, the payoff will be worth it. All right, here we go. So the fig tree, the way that fig trees work, and I don't know this, experts tell me this, so I'm taking their word for it, is that when a fig tree has leaves on it, when you see green leaves on a fig tree, that's an indicator that you should rightly expect to find fruit on the tree. They go hand in hand. And yes, figs are fruit. But when Jesus approaches the fig tree from a distance, though it's out of season, as Mark tells us, Jesus sees the leaves on it, and he's like, oh, I can expect figs on this tree. And so he approaches and he finds no fruit on it whatsoever. So there's leaves indicating that there should be fruit. He approaches the tree, no fruit, and so he curses it. Make sense? Okay, 
Keep this idea in your mind. Don't lose it. Now, last week, when Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem from afar, he was approaching the temple. And what does he find? A lot of green leaves, literally and metaphorically, right? Palm branches, what color are those, church? Green, okay? He finds them waving griefy palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which sure looks a whole lot like green leaves, doesn't it? And yet, when Jesus comes up close to the temple, the center of Jewish faith and worship, what does he find? The fruit of faith? No, there's no figs whatsoever. No fruit, no faith. And so like the fig tree, the Jewish people receive a powerful divine curse that comes upon them swiftly, okay? And how did that curse come upon them? Three ways. The revoking of the kingdom to that generation. Secondly, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the eternal destruction of their souls in a place of judgment called hell. And why? Because they didn't do enough of the things They didn't sacrifice enough. They didn't pray enough. They didn't fast enough. They weren't taking care of the poor and the foreigners and the court of the Gentiles where they were exploiting people. Is that why? No, it's because they were faithless. Because if we are faithless, then we will be fruitless. Make sense what Jesus is doing with this parable now? Not parable, it's an illustration. Faith, the point here is faith produces fruit, not the other way around. Faith produces fruit, not the other way around. Fruit doesn't produce faith. And so if you try that, sit there and try to twist that thing around, it's gonna lead to you being cursed to a place called hell for all of eternity. And this leads us to our second point. Without faith, we will be, we will be fruitless. But secondly, we will be cursed. Look at verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside... Jesus went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. As we just said, faith produces fruit. It's not the other way around. That's definitely a cart you do not want to get before the horse or you're gonna be in a world of hurt. The other way around leads to being eternally cursed. So how? In one of two ways. The first way is called legalism. Okay, and a lot of us have experienced this. It's not a fun thing. It's a really challenging thing. So it's called legalism. And I know that sounds like a legal term, but it actually has nothing to do with lawyers. I know we don't like lawyers, but that's not what we're talking about here. So what is legalism? Legalism is a heart that says, I can do it. I can remove the curse by my, I I can handle this. I I can remove this thing. And how? By doing the things. I can do some of those things. I can do some fruit. I can make this happen. Sure, I might need some faith to go along with it, but, you know, I gotta do something myself too. After all, I mean, everybody knows the most common Bible verse, which is God helps those who help themselves, which strangely enough, I can never find in my Bible, but, you know, we gotta pay our fair share when it comes to this thing. That's called legalism. And you can tell when a legalist shows up How? Because suddenly all that fruit that you had thought was perfectly fine and worth eating, suddenly they show up and say, oh, you eat that? No, you can't do that. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. You eat apples? Let me tell you about the danger of apples. Oh, you like grapes? That's a great way to choke to death. 
and they seem to always know somebody who choked to death on grapes, right? They have these anecdotal evidence where it's like, that leads to that. You cannot do that. All right, and so before you know it, you're sitting there feeling bad about your apples and your grapes, so you throw them out and start picking up tomatoes and green peas because those are the only good fruits that Christians, real good Christians, produce. Which I don't understand for the life of me because I still cannot figure out how tomato is a fruit, but whatever. There you are, munching away on worthless tomatoes and uncooked green beans, all because the legalists showed up and convinced you to do so. And what's more fun than that is that this always results in one of two things every single time. There's only two options. It results in major pride or the opposite, which is major self-loathing. And the reason for this is because there are some people who just naturally love tomatoes and uncooked green beans. You know who you are. And when it comes to apples and grapes, well, you know what? They didn't really care for those things too much anyways. And so giving those up to eat what they already liked really wasn't that big of a deal. And then when they look over and they see the other guy who just doesn't really care for tomatoes, doesn't really care for green beans, and just loved grapes and apples, having a difficult time getting his palate adjusted to this, what do they think? What's that guy's problem? I don't have that problem. Maybe he should get with the program here. In fact, I think he could learn a thing from me. Let, me. let me show you how this is done, Okay. It's actually quite simple once you set your mind to it. And meanwhile, the other guy is feeling like a total failure all because he is not only trying to give up something that God never asked him to in the first place, but he's feeling worthless because he can't do it. And all of this has led both parties to base their self-worth on their fruit, not their faith. That's called legalism. And it is a drug you do not want to play around with. Faith produces fruit. It's not fruit produces faith. The other way around leads to you being cursed to hell through two ways. First, as we just saw with legalism, but secondly, through what is called anti-legalism or the theological fancy term for this is antinomianism, okay? But we're gonna go with some just basic term here. We don't wanna get too tricksy. We're gonna call this cheap grace, okay? So anti-legalism, antinomianism, we're gonna call that cheap grace, okay? What is that? It's faith that is fruitless. See, with legalism, they recognize that faith produces fruit. And so instead of focusing on the faith, they get the cart before the horse and they focus on the fruit. But with anti-legalism or what we're calling cheap grace, they say this, oh, you don't like fruit at all? What about grapes? No. What about bananas? Mm, Yuck, texture thing for me. What about apples? I never really cared for apples, honestly. Take or leave it, you know, not, 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 you know. What about watermelon, oranges, pears, plums, or pie, how do you say that word? Papayas, there we go. There's not two Y's in that. Papayas, nope, gross. What about blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, cranberries? There's gotta be at least one berry you like. Honestly, I'm just not a berry person. What about apricots, mangoes? nectarines, passion, I can keep going here, I'm gonna stop. But you get the idea, right? Like it doesn't come, it doesn't matter what fruit you put before them, like I don't want anything to do with that. It's gross, I don't like it. The point though here is that with this kind of a person, there's no fruit whatsoever. Not, not a zilch, none. And in spite of this, what does the antinomian cheap gracer say to this person? But you said a prayer. I remembered, you remember it? They're like, nah, not really, I don't really remember that, but you know, You said I did great grandma, so maybe I did, you know? And 
So they just say, well, I was there. You said the prayer. It was a magical day. I'll never forget. And that person's clearly forgot it. But here's the gospel truth, the honest gospel truth. No fruit, no root. No fruit, no root. See, legalism says if there's no fruit, you don't like any of it, well, then what do you do? You buckle down, you eat that stuff anyways. You be a good Christian boy or girl, and you get at that fruit, and you start doing it. Otherwise, you know, get at it. Can I tell you something, though? If that's you, you have no fruit, you don't like the fruit of the Spirit, none of that, if you have no taste or appetite for it whatsoever, you will not make it no matter how much you buckle down and get after it. You won't. Not in a million years of forcing yourself to eat what you don't like. So that's legalism. And in the opposite corner, what do you find? Anti-legalism, antinomianism, cheap gracers. No fruit, they say? Pfft, no fear. Kuna matata, right? No worries. They get all this Bob Marley theology going on when it comes to this. And you know, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be, you know, the, you know the song. But can I tell you something? It's not going to be all right. Because the honest gospel truth that we find over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation is no fruit, no faith. And if you don't want to take my words for it, let's look at what James says on this. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Well, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Let me try to explain James in like 30 seconds here, which is kind of hard to do because if you remember, we took about a year to explain James before we were in Matthew. But if you're here this morning wondering, preacher, you know, I don't know if I can show you my faith by my works. Not sure there's enough, especially when I look around at other people and see the kind of faith they're producing. I think I might be falling short of this. If that's you, then let me make this really, really simple and really, really practical. When it comes to fruit, I don't want to hear about how many spiritual apples are in your cart compared to the person next to you. That's not a fair comparison. And why? Because the reality is some of us are like NFL athletes and some of us are like peewee football players. We're not all starting at the same point on the track. And so if you start comparing the fruit that's in your cart to the fruit to other people, for one, you don't have enough of an accurate perspective to know if that's actually a legit comparison or not, but it's not a fair comparison whatsoever because some of us are starting this race with good heredity, good upbringing, good genetics, whatever. The point is we have advantages where others have major disadvantages. So don't do the comparison game with other people. Not only are you in, unable to make that comparison, but it's not going to go well for you because it's going to result in you either being extremely prideful or, as we said before, extremely self-loathing. It absolutely will every single time. Instead, then, here's what I want you to do. If you say, I'm not sure I have enough fruit, here's what I want you to do. Tell me how you've seen Christ change you in ways that you never could have in a million years. Tell me about how you are slowly, sometimes very slowly with one step forward, two steps back sort of a thing, coming to long for the fruit of the Spirit, which Galatians tells us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And make no mistake, you're not going to do this perfectly, not even close. But 
if you have true faith, over time, you will find yourself craving these things more and more than you did on day one, right? That's called sanctification, progress in becoming Christ-like, which is all done by faith in the power of God. And another thing, this is huge. If you find yourself longing for the day when that fruit is your fully attained reality, Because until that day, until we are perfectly glorified, until we are perfectly Christ-like, we're fighting this thing called the flesh. And you know what the flesh craves? Not that. It doesn't. It hates that stuff. And Paul talks about this, and it's brilliant how he puts this. Here's what he says. He says, the things that I want to do, okay, the fruit of the Spirit, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, the fruit of the flesh, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? What's the answer, church? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? That's the answer here. Does your mind, or might we say your spirit, long for Christ? Does it long for the fruit that your flesh hates? Then take hope, Christian, not in yourself, but in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we rightly give thanks to. And why? Because he, hear me when I say this, he is the root who produces the fruit. Christ is the root who produces the fruit, and he does so not by work so that nobody can boast, but entirely by his grace through faith in him. And take hope, because this is a faith that does not fail. Philippians 1, 6 says this, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. As an unbeliever, if you fail to recognize this, not only will you be fruitless and cursed for all of eternity, you're not going to break that curse in a million years of good works, but as a believer, if you fail to fully let this sink in deeply into your heart, it's going to leave you completely and totally powerless in your faith which leads us to our final point. Verses 20 through 22 said this, say this. When the disciples saw this, what did they do? This is funny. They marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, It'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Can I just point out how much I love the disciples' response here in this passage? Jesus curses this fig tree. And what happens? It miraculously withers overnight. And the disciples see this, and what do they do? Whoa, how did this happen? How did the guy who miraculously turned water into wine do this? This is unbelievable. How did the guy who cast out demons, walked on water, do something like this? The guy who calmed the storm with his words, who fed the 5,000 and then a little bit later fed the 4,000. How did he do this? The guy who miraculously healed the sick, made the lame walk, caused the blind to see, and raised that Lazarus guy from the dead like a week ago. How did he curse the tree and make it wither overnight? This is hilarious stuff. We are the disciples. That's us. We do this all the time. 
Like how many times does God miraculously provide for us? And then the next day we're like, oh, I don't know if he can do that. How's that that possible? We we should pray to him? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if he's powerful enough. We are them to a T. You got to laugh at this. The disciples are us. If you don't see it, you need a little epistemic humility here. We are the disciples. We do this all the time. How? Well, wait a minute. God, God flooded the entire earth. Are you sure about that? I don't know. I had science in high school. I don't, I don't know if he could do something like that. Yeah, sure, I'm okay with him raising Jesus from the dead, but I don't know. Comes this whole flood thing, maybe, maybe, maybe not. You think God spoke the world into existence with the power of his voice? He did it in like six days? I, mm, not too sure. Well, I am. And for case in point here, I'm going to point you to the miraculous time-traveling fig tree. Because that's precisely what this is, isn't it? Right? Like, the God of time says, boom, I'm going to miraculously wither and age this tree in what normally takes weeks, if not months. I'm going to do it in a matter of hours. Okay? And I don't actually care about what the laws of nature have to say about it. I don't need their permission. They do what I want. You think this, have might, this might have any implications for Genesis 1 and 2? How about implications for the effectiveness of our Christian walk? There are a lot of implications there, is there not? Jesus seems to think so. And which is frustrating because if you see what people do to verses 21 and 22, they turn it into a whole mess of garbage that isn't even close to accurate. Okay, what's going on here? In verse 21, Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, what? Not only can you disciples do what the fig tree has, what we did to the fig tree, what I did to the fig tree here, but you can toss mountains into the sea. That seems kind of powerful, doesn't it? Seems very powerful. Well, what does he mean by this? He means that faith is powerful. It's pretty straightforward. Because without faith, you are powerless, completely powerless. Think about this. How powerful is faith? Not only can faith slide that camel cleanly through the eye of a needle, but as we just mentioned, faith can toss mountains into the sea, which is actually small potatoes compared to the biggest feat that faith accomplishes, which is saving cursed sinners from judgment, which is rightly coming towards them. For faith can not only save them, but it can then turn them into powerful, fruit-bearing, mountain-tossing spiritual giants. And why? Because of the power of their faith? No, because of the power of the object of their faith. Look, church, faith is like a window, okay? If you say you have faith, I don't know what that means. Faith in what? Okay, so just saying I have faith, that's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Faith is like a window. It allows you to see through the wall at whatever it is you're looking at. And as Christians, our faith is a window to the powerfully risen Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And yet, what do we often do? We turn our faith into a mirror. It's supposed to be a window, not a mirror. And so we sit there powerless, wondering why we can't even toss a spiritual fig, let alone a spiritual mountain into the sea. And it's all because our faith in that moment is focused on ourselves where there is no power whatsoever. So quit looking at yourself. Break that mirror. It's not going to curse you. It's 
not going to give you bad luck. It's actually going to free you by giving you the powerful life-changing effects of faith in your life. Not because of your faith functioning as a mirror, but your faith functioning as a window to the object of our faith, the one to whom only brings powerful life-changing effect. And so by faith, look to him. Look to the one who, though he was perfectly fruitful, though he was entirely powerful, became powerless and cursed for us in order to make us free from the curse of sin. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you been set free from the curse of faith or for the curse of sin? Have you been set free from the curse through faith in him? And is that powerful faith producing fruit in your life? If not, hear his words. Have faith. Have faith and do not doubt. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray that you would help our faith in Christ to function as a window and not a mirror, for there is no hope in the self. So I pray for the son or daughter of the king here who is struggling with their faith, they're doubting. Help them to have faith and not to doubt. Help them to recognize that it is faith that produces fruit, not the other way around. There's no hope in that. We can't change our palate any more than we could grow wings and fly. Father, I also pray for the one here today who has no faith whatsoever and is strictly focused on fruit. Pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Help them to realize that the curse can only be broken through the cross. So, Father, we look to the cross of Jesus where you graciously and mercifully provided the blood of Christ which breaks the curse, which our flesh could never do on our own. Help us to live in light of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.